And we all got dreams We all want things But what you gonna do for it? How you gonna move for it? What you gonna be? And do you believe You can do anything But what you gonna do for it? How you gonna move for it? What you gonna be? The first edition of Outside Shots for the 2023-2024 college basketball season. I am Eli Herskovich. You can follow me on Twitter, X, whatever Elon Musk wants to call it these days, at Eli Herskovich. And you can follow Haslametrics on the same site, at Haslametrics. Eric Haslam, the proud owner of Haslametrics.com, the best college basketball analytics site. And we'll be doing plenty of college basketball betting discussion throughout the season. So excited to be joined by Eric on the Outside Shots podcast this college basketball season. How you doing, Eric? I am doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I don't think either of us can do or can be feeling any worse than Michigan State over the first three games of the season. But before we dive yes. into the, the futures market and everything else going on in college basketball, we'll look at the top of the odds board for national title features. We'll go through some of the biggest contenders and some odds that stand out to us. We'll also dive into a game that intrigues us for the Friday slate as we're recording this here on Thursday night on November 16th and some early games for the Maui Invitational as a bunch of holiday tournaments have already started up. And that's one of the biggest ones during feast week. But Eric, for the listeners and viewers that don't know what Haslametrics is, why don't you explain to them the idea behind it and how you differentiate it from other college basketball analytics sites. Sure. Yeah. So Haslametrics has been around. It's, it was something I started tinkering with probably going back about a dozen years, but then kind of actually got the website up and running probably about 2014 and 2015. And at first I kind of wanted to, I started just kind of like recreating the wheel that was already there. And if you're familiar with Dean Oliver's four factors, you're basically attaining a linear regression model based on four different factors, effective field goal percentage, turnover percent, offensive rebounding percentage, and then uh, free throw rate. Um, I kind of started going down that route. And then I said to myself, what am I doing? You know, why don't I just do this? a little bit differently, do this my own way. And I said, like, I'm going to wipe, wipe the slate clean and kind of say, if I was going to do this from scratch, how would I do it? And I decided upon, and this is where the, the basis of Haslametrics is, is it, it's based on a spider web of transitive comparisons that are geared around shooting. And specifically, you look at where a team shoots um, from, uh, you know, is it, are they more likely to shoot from distance, from three-point range, from near proximity, from mid-range? You know, how often are they getting to the foul line? Um, then you look at how often these teams um, come across field goal opportunities that might yield a higher percentage. And I'm thinking of situations like second chance points or quick points off of steals. Um, how often are they attaining those opportunities versus, say, like a re regular set defense half-court scoring opportunity? And then you kind of break things down and you look at how a team performs from each of these locations and in each of these scenarios. So you end up kind of creating a matrix of sorts um, that you can use to compare versus other teams' performances versus common opponents. And that was kind of the idea behind it. That was the starting point behind it. And then I added little things along the way, like the analytically final that a lot of people that I'm known for on Twitter um, which is basically you're 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 throwing out garbage time stats. If a, if a team is up by 31 with seven minutes to play, 
Are you really interested in gauging how that team is going to play over the last seven minutes? Because at that point, you're if the team's up 31, they're putting in their ninth, 10th, 11th guys on the bench. Um, I'm looking to kind of rate these teams when they're looking at full strength. And I'm not really interested in those situations where you're playing your scrubs. So analytically, final came into play. Um, I was able to truncate that data, give myself a, a better indicator of how these teams are at full strength. And, you know, just little by little, it started from there. And, you know, I keep little tweaks here and there. But for the most part, that is what Haslametrics is all about. And if you look at Haslametrics.com right now, Kansas, the number one rated team, then Purdue. I have a gripe with Matt Painter, and we'll discuss the Boilermakers <laughs> later on in the show. Alabama, number three. Houston, four. Tennessee, fifth. We'll get into the Cougars and Vols later on as well. Gonzaga taking on Purdue. Gonzaga, number six on Haslametrics, and it's going to be Boilermakers Bulldogs in the first mm -hmm. round of the Maui Invitational. Great matchup on Monday night. Then the defending national champion, UConn Huskies, Arizona, which knocked off Duke at Cameron. Last Friday, Texas A&M, pretty good-ish non-conference win at Ohio State. On the same night, Marquette went to Illinois with Tyler Cole, quote-unquote, dealing with an ankle injury. I don't know how true that was. He looked fine <laughs> to me, but... The Golden Eagles round out the top 10, and we'll dive into the Big East as well, looking at UConn, Marquette, and Creighton, and a full discussion of which of those national title odds stand out most between the Big East contenders, and arguably, some would say, at least in the top half of the conference, at least looking at top halves of the best conferences, Power Six in college basketball, arguably the best top half of any conference in the country, but for those that are listening that are used to hearing me talk about day-to-day -day bets and doing day-to-day -day bets, as Eric, I'm sure you know, life changes for a lot of people and life threw me a bit of a curveball last year that I had to adjust to. So I'm not going to be doing as much of the day-to-day -day grind, the night-by-night -night grind, looking at college basketball openers. You yourself have, I think, what, two kids? So you definitely yeah. know what it feels like to have... A, a little bit of a different family situation in your life. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of look at college basketball, and I have to remind people that it's still kind of a game. It's supposed to be fun, and I think it's got to be light. And I think one of the things that's really changed about bas basketball, you can argue for the better or for the worse in the last five or six years, is that it just seems like, you know, it just seems like this big race, this rat race for content. And so, you know, we kind of joke in the offseason about, you know, how many – you know, who's going to be ranking the top 15 left-handed Irishmen west of the Mississippi? And it's like, <laughs> it, it just seems like, especially in the last five or six years, we've kind of gone overboard. And I like to remind people and say, you got to stop and and remember what's important in life. And like I said, I have two daughters. I have a wife. I enjoy my Wisconsin summers. I kind of take this this marathon for what it is for the five months. And then I kind of turn things off a little bit for seven months. I like, I have my little my little black book or green book that I always have every year. And I, you know, I track what's going on in the off season, but I, I kind of keep it light. And I, I, I want to remind people that it's still a game um, to enjoy it as such. It's not curing cancer. Um, so, you know, at the same time, I think it's great. It, it really gives us something to watch, especially this time of year when it gets cold around here in Wisconsin, I got the games on right over here right now. Um, but at the same time, like I said, I always tell people, try not to gorge yourself on it. Remember what's important in life. I respect that. Eric's got a good head on his shoulders for sure. What is a Wisconsin summer like, by the way? 
a Wisconsin summer. I don't, I never want to tell people about Wisconsin summers because that means people are going to come up here in Wisconsin and, and it, it's just a beautiful, it, you know, once, once you get past, um, that nasty month of April, when it's like always 38 degrees and slush, finally, when you get into May, you get into like the high sixties. And then after that, it's nothing but 80 degrees for about three, three months straight. And we got so many great towns and so much to do here. More restaurants per capita in, in Madison um, than anywhere else. And if you're a foodie or you're a drinky or whatever you want to call it, um, there's just so many so many things you can hit up here in Madison. I My wife and I come across restaurants that we love. Well, we have to come back here. And it may be three years before we come back just because we have 20 places that are like that. So we find our favorites. We hit those up. Uh, but there's just so much to do. And it's so hard for me to to really sit down and lock myself in my basement in the middle of June when it's beautiful and 80 degrees outside. Yeah. And if you're looking for a tour guide or maybe just someone to go bar hopping with drive up to Wisconsin, take a flight to Wisconsin (laughs) and Eric is your guy there. But Eric, we digress about Wisconsin suburbs. I haven't spent a suburb Wisconsin besides maybe the Dells. I mean, I live in Chicago, so Granted, it's not that far of a drive for me, but yeah. maybe I need to take you up on it sometime. <laughs> but l- looking at the national title odds board here, and obviously things have changed a little bit over the last week or so with where what? Two weeks or so, a little less than two weeks into the season. Mm-hmm. Kansas is still your national title favorite at around 11 to one. Then Kentucky, which has risen up a little bit after their strong showing against Kansas at the Champions Classic. Purdue, and Kentucky right around 14. I mean, they're listen, there's wide ranging odds for a team like Purdue as high as 20 to one over at bet rivers. And you could price shop these odds over at the lines.com, but also as low as 11 to one at FanDuel and bet MGM. Then Duke, of course, which took down Michigan state as around a three and a half, four point favorite in the first leg of the champions classic on Tuesday night, UConn, I mentioned them, the defending national champs at 20 to one, but I want to take a look at, Michigan State Duke, as we look at some of our takeaways to start off this podcast from the Champions Classic, Michigan State was thought to be one of the national title contenders on opening or actually right after the title game wrapped up between UConn and San Diego State. Believe it or not, there were some 50 to ones out there on MSU to win it all. And people jumped on that. Obviously, the number got slashed and they opened the season right around 15, 16 to one pretty much across the board to win it all. And by the way, if you're looking to make any national title futures bets over at BetMGM Sportsbook, first-time users can use promo code THELINES to get up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet loses. That's the lines one word. And Michigan State right now at BetMGM is 20 to 1. So you look at their performance against Duke, and granted, they shot it better from three, than they had in their first two games. Kind of hard, six to, and a half hard to do worse. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't do worse than six and a half percent. I don't think. Yeah. Maybe Michigan State will prove <laughs> us wrong later in the year. But they shot sixteen point three percent from three, or overall in their first three games, including the Duke game, just over thirty percent from deep in that Duke game. The spacing around AJ Hogard is going to be the difference maker for me. I know Tyson Walker was hitting some contested threes later on in the second half that allowed the Spartans to creep a little bit closer. But I was harping on this, Eric, throughout the offseason. I thought the loss of Joey Hauser, 
who was their foreman over the last couple of years, obviously graduated going into this year, was one of the biggest losses of any contender. And I kind of compared it to the Brady Manic situation with mm-hmm. UNC. Manic was a huge contributor to the Tar Heels going to the national title game. He graduates, and UNC, among many other reasons, chemistry maybe being at the forefront, lacked a lot of perimeter shooting last year. And mind you, they were number one going into the season and had one of the shortest odds to win it all. And then you look at Hauser last year in terms of individual player contributions, Mm -hmm. points per shot, 1.46 points per shot on unguarded jump shots last year. Then you look at Michigan State overall this season, and I know it's an extremely small sample size, but they rank in the first percentile on unguarded shots. And that's has a lot to do with three-point shooting, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be regression, undoubtedly. But I still think that's going to plague them in terms of them not having that four-man that you could run in ball screens with Hogard throughout the season. Yeah, that was I, – I kind of said playfully what you touched on before. I said, you know, watching these games, I'm like, man, maybe Joey Hauser was the greatest player in the country. We had no idea. <laughs> Uh, but it was, I mean, it, it, it was a big shock considering that Michigan State at the end of the year last time, my analytics, was the number one team from from distance, from, from three-point range. I think they were ninth or something like that two years ago. And so when they come out there in the first two games and they shoot two for 31, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you, you, could, you almost have to try to miss 29 out of 31 threes. Um, but you know, again, I, I'm not going to, and I've, I'll say this time and time again, I don't put a ton of stock in what you see out there in the first couple weeks. Obviously this shows up on a resume, but I'm always going to be much far more interested in what you're going to see out of a team in February than you are, um, out of a team in, in November. Um, I have no doubt they're going to get their act together. You all, you touched on this. They shot six of 19 against Duke 32%, not phenomenal, but Hey, a lot of, you know, far cry from two for 31 um, I, I just think it's just going to take a little bit of time. It is a little bit of a shock that they have not played a little bit better. I mean, they bring back that that starting five of Walker, Holgard, Aikens, Hall, and Sissoko. And then everybody was talking up and say, what's going to take them over the edge and take them to the next level is this freshman class of Carr yeah. and Booker and, and Fears. But, you know, and I, I'll touch on an old uh, uh, guy from Wisconsin years ago, Howard, Howard Moore, back in the 90s when he played. He was the most athletic guy, jumped out of the gym. But just because these guys are athletes doesn't mean they're going to hold it together in a team environment in Division I college basketball. No, don't get me wrong. Very talented guys. But you're asking a lot, even out of the most talented of freshmen, to go out there and play your best game right away. I mean, under the hot lights in Division I college basketball, it is a completely different basketball game than being in high school. So I think over time, these guys are going to get their feet a little bit more wet as time goes along. It's just, you know, it, it, it's something that I expected, honestly. it's I, I think Michigan State fans have a very, you know, they think their team has a very high ceiling. I think they're absolutely true, but I think you need to temper your expectations, especially in the months of November and December. And they have a great bounce back spot at home against Butler on Friday night, looking at Haslam metrics. I think this line is opened or did open right around eight, eight and a half. And you had this line closer to seven, but Mm -hmm. obviously 
your numbers take into account the smaller sample size. So you would expect the number maybe to be a little bit shorter than the market. And then you factor in the bounce back spot at home. Situationally, it is a good game for Michigan State to maybe get some positive three-point variance. But they are going to need it from a guy like Jay Nakins. That was a guy that, on top of the freshman class that Michigan State brought in, people expected to see that jump from. And ironically, Pierre Brooks who transferred to Butler for Michigan State, looking back at last year's roster. So Brooks making his return against his former team on Friday night when you're probably listening to this, or maybe you're listening to this over the weekend. He is shooting around 30%, so not the biggest loss, but still added some floor spacing for them off the bench. So to your point, this is not the Michigan State team that we're going to be looking at in January and February, but I still think the Hauser loss is going to plague them. Maybe the more people or more betters expected, at least in terms of the national futures market, national title futures market. And then you think on the flip side, Duke covering against MSU and getting, I mean, they bring in a heralded freshman class as well. And Caleb Foster being one of those freshmen shot four or five from three. That was a team that struggled to shoot the ball from distance last year. I have them tolerated number one overall I know you have them a bit lower on Haslametrics, mm-hmm. but getting a guy like Foster is going to pay a lot of dividends for a team that has a very strong backcourt in Roach and Proctor, and Proctor played a much better game than he did against Arizona, six assists, no turnovers, against a team that does pressure the ball, looking at that MSU backcourt and Walker and Hogard, but adding a guy like Foster off the bench, and he may even start sooner than later, is a huge addition for floor spacing purposes for the Blue Devils. Yeah, with Duke, uh, Duke kind of gives me that same feeling that I got from Kansas. It was a team that just, whenever I see guys like Jeremy Roach and and, and Tyrese Proctor and Kyle Filipowski, that's just that comfortable foundation that that allows you to have that poise. And I think um, that's a, I feel the same way when, when Kentucky was pressing with all the young guys pushing against Kansas. Um, I kind of had that feeling like Kansas has the experience, they have the poise. It's, it's, it's only a matter of time. I had a, a similar feeling about Duke in that game. Um, I, I'm not as big on the depth of Duke that everybody else is. I'm not a, a – you know, I think Ryan Young, every time I see Ryan Young come out there, I'm like, he's just such a one-trick pony. He's a, he's a guy who rebounds, and, and he's not an I have no threat. idea why he was on the floor against Arizona. I don't know. But and I look at him, and, and I see a lot of people will tout that Duke that Duke depth – excuse me, Duke depth. Um, I'm not as – up on it as everybody else is but at the same time hopefully they won't have to tap into it too much if you can get eight guys deep eight nine guys deep that's more than enough obviously things change as the season goes along and injuries are there but um, when it came to these two teams it just seems like Duke had the poise I always have that that comfort level with Jeremy Roach whenever I see him play I don't think Tyrese Proctor has played his best ball but there is so much upside there with Filipowski and, and Proctor. And then Roach, you can always fall back on him being a, a, a solid contributor. Um, you know, Just considering the struggles that MSU has had, it doesn't surprise me that Duke came away with the win there. And looking at the second leg of the Champions Classic, Kentucky and Kansas, citing Haslametrics, actually. And it's no surprise after you had a guy like Hunter Dickinson, but the Jayhawks ranked number one on your site in second chance conversion percentage. And you look at Dickinson putting up a 20 plus 20 plus performance against Kentucky, 1.31 points per possession so far for Dickinson on post-up touches, which again is no surprise. You would think he's going to be a perfect fit in Bill Self's offense that has 
dominated with these kind of bigs and self said, even I think pregame that Dickinson is the best front court player he's ever coached. And you could hate Hunter Dickinson and listen, I hate Hunter Dickinson <laughs> and he was getting, I, I may hate him more than Brad Davidson. Eric, you're a Wisconsin <laughs> fan. How does it, how does it make you feel to hear me say that? Well, he, I, well, he called us all thugs, uh, the Wisconsin people or something like that. So, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's all right. He can say what he wants. It's no big deal. I know there's a little mini rivalry there, uh, since, uh, back when Juwan tried to bitch slap, uh, our assistant coach a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. If he wants to talk, he's, I mean, you can't deny the talent and the guy goes up there and goes 20, like you said, 20 plus 20 plus in that game makes such an impact. Um, it, you know, I don't know if they win that game. If he's not in there, if you're playing with somebody else from, I, I mean, someone from the past few years, but, um, yeah, just a huge impact. Maybe the number one transfer portal impact you're going to see this entire season. Absolutely. And then you mentioned Kentucky and, Covering in the first half, I think that first half line covering and cashing in, if you bet Kentucky first half money line, they were around plus four in the first half and closed around plus seven for the game. So you could have had a nice middle there, fat middle, if you expected Kansas to make a second half run, which they did. Kentucky has never averaged 23 point attempts per game under Calipari in his tenure in Lexington. I wrote that up in my column looking ahead to Kentucky, Kansas on Monday night. And 38 three-point attempts for that Wildcats backcourt against Kansas. Obviously blowing the second-half lead, but having guys like Shepard, who look like one of Kentucky's best players off the bench, and Dillingham, who Cal was screaming at in the second half for a, a poor shot selection with one of his threes. But then you look at guys like Edwards and Wagner. They combined for five points, I think, didn't... I mean, they couldn't buy a bucket, so... You want to talk about bitching out, or it's not like Cal bitch slapped Dillingham, but definitely called him out for his shot selection. I thought that was a little bit unwarranted considering Kentucky isn't winning that game at halftime if he didn't hit, what, four threes in 90 seconds. But their backcourt, that is the prototypical Cal team, and this Kentucky team looked up to speed and then some. They look like the young Kentucky backcourt that we're used to seeing under Cal. Probably... The last one since, and they were a little bit more experienced, but going back to that COVID year, that COVID backcourt that easily would have made a run if the season wasn't shut down. Yeah, there have definitely been some seasons in there where Calipari's brought in some freshmen and they have looked absolutely lost in the months of November and December. Um, really kind of did not give me that impression at all this past week. This team looked far more polished than I remember a lot of Cal's younger teams playing in the past. Um, you know, you, you brought up Rob Dillingham. It was really noticeable for me. I go in there, I, not having had watched a lot of Kentucky before that game. And I'm, you know, obviously aware of Justin Edwards and DJ Wagner, but then Dillingham right away, just his insane quickness and the ability of his long distance shooting ability was far more apparent to me than anything that Edwards or Wagner did. Now, yes, we talked, there, there are going to be those freshman mistakes. Um, I think it was late in the first half. He drove underneath the hoop caused a turnover, and then on the other end, Dickinson hits a three, cuts the lead to seven when it could have yeah. been 13 if if um, Dillingham is smart with the ball. That's going to drive Calipari nuts. It's going to happen. It's freshman growing pains. This is the teach- teachable moments. You see the similar stuff with Tom Izzo right now with his, his young freshman. He's yelling and screaming at these guys in the sidelines. They're going to learn. They're going to pick this stuff up. But 
at the same at the same time, it's not just these freshmen. I know there was an air ball in there from Justin Edwards from three that was an easy quick points for Kansas on the other end. But at the same time, Antonio Reeves, you know, even though he scored 24 points, what did he shoot? Three of 17 from three-point range. Yeah. Um, so not a great shooting night from him. And when you think of all these mistakes where, you know, Reeves didn't shoot well and Dillingham had a couple turnovers and Edwards and and Wagner didn't have great shoot, uh, great showings. Aduth Eero did. He played really well. But um, there was still really some, athletic. Yeah. Still, oh, my God. For a guy, he does not look that way. When you look at him, you're like, how does that guy get above the rim as far as he does? It's crazy. But um, it, considering that they had all these kind of shortcomings, they came out there and they played hard against Kansas, lost that game by, what was it? In a, it was a five-point loss, if I remember. Um, so I look at that as a positive. A lot of coaches will say, well, you lost the game. There's no positives in losing. This can, this Kentucky team looks a lot better than a lot of the younger Kentucky teams that I've seen in the last five years. Wrapping up with Kentucky, no Bradshaw and Onyenso because yeah, they're sophomore right. big. Both of those guys dealing with foot injuries. So the fact that you had Trey Mitchell going up against Dickinson and there was a questionable call in the final two minutes where there was a replay of it that maybe I grasp where Dickinson seemed to kind of flail and flop, but maybe a couple seconds before you saw Trey Mitchell initiate the contact. Mitchell also didn't have a great offensive game himself. And if he's going to be your floor spacing five at times on the floor, that adds even more spacing for a team that ranks 73rd in already in three point attempts per game. Again, shocking to even just see on paper for a Calipari led team. But on the flip side of that, going back to Kansas, Dewan Harris hit a ton of huge shots, especially from behind the arc in the second half if he's going to be improved from three, and then you factor in that Nicholas Timberlake, the Towson transfer, didn't give you anything really offensively. Furphy, who's supposed to be a really good shooter from Australia, also didn't contribute. He seemed to kind of rush his shots. So I think Kansas's depth is going to be there on the perimeter, maybe a little bit more so than people expected entering the season. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think he kind of went with uh, self, kind of went with his known commodities very early on. I think you're going to see more and more. You're going to see more of Furphy. You'll see more of El, um, El Marco Jackson. Um, you'll see more of Brown. Um, it's it just wasn't there at this time. I think he, put, he kind of relied on his big guns for this particular matchup, and it paid off. Uh, but as time goes along, you're going to require that depth. Like I said, injuries are going to happen. Teams get worn down. I think of, uh, what was it, about two or three years ago, I think it was a St. Bonaventure team that re- really relied on like five guys or five or six guys, and they just wore down. By the time March came around, it wasn't the same basketball team anymore. So you have to rely on that freshman depth a little bit later on. But I don't think it was unwise for him to really lean on his on his known commodities in this one. It paid off. Um and credit to Kentucky. Like I said, Kentucky came in there with a game plan. And they came in there trying to push back at Kansas, really put them on their heels offensively. Really, um, I you know, I think athletic-wise, I think Kentucky had them beat. But I don't know if Kentucky maybe got a little bit winded there in the second half, but the or the poise of Kansas just came out. But for whatever reason, Kentucky just could not close the deal. All the, Like I said, they showed well. Yeah, I mean, 14-point second-half lead, those are hard to blow, but also it's a really young team, as we've harped on here. So you're going to have growing pains, and the fact that they were up that much against a Jayhawks team that finally started to leak out in transition. Kevin McCuller, too, triple-double. 
the leap that he could make. And I've been a Kevin McCuller stand since his Texas Tech days under Beard. I'm pretty sure he was there for at least a year before mm-hmm. Beard went to Texas. The fact that you have two playmakers in your backcourt between McCuller and Harris is ridiculous. So Kansas is deserved of that number one team, not only in the AP Top 25, but amongst the national title odds, as I mentioned from the top. I have them tolerated fifth, but still one of the best teams in college basketball, no question about it. And some of the other teams that are at the top of the national future odds board as we kind of shift our attention to the Big East Conference. I have a future from this conference, but I want to get your perspective first, Eric, looking at UConn right around 20 to 1, Marquette around the same price at 20 to 1, both of those teams priced at that number at Bet MGM and then Creighton 25 to 1 at that same sports book. Whether you're going to place a wager, if you have placed a wager, obviously feel free to mention if it is on one of those teams, but if you were to place a wager or maybe the long-term upside that you're most intrigued by between UConn, Marquette, and Creighton, which team is it? Like it's it's a really tough call because like you kind of alluded to, they're right on top of each other. I think right now I have UConn at number seven, Marquette at 10, Creighton 11. You're talking about fractions of a point that are separating these guys on a neutral court. If I had to pick one, I'm probably going Creighton. Um, and the reason I love the addition of Stephen Stephen Ashworth from Utah State, he gives me a bit of that Marcus Marcus Zigarowski vibe a little bit, and I'm always looking for like that next guy who's just going to contribute do a, do just enough that he can take you up to, can take a team up to similar to what UConn had last year that that total team package, and I don't know if if Creighton is there yet, but I really think if I'm going to pick probably three or five teams that are going to have that total package across the board. I'm probably going to pick Creighton as one of them. You know, with Marquette, Marquette is a great passing team. I love what they what they do. I, you know, they have, you, you touched on Tyler Kolek being the contributor that he is. You bring almost everybody back. The only one you don't bring back is Omax Prosper. My concern always with Marquette is going to be rebounding. And then with UConn, again, the solid core of team that, that you had last year, but the losses from last year are obviously significant. It's it's just UConn light to a certain degree. Not to say they're not elite, <laughs> but it's I, it's, like I mean they were they were so powerful last year. They were dominant, especially in the month of March. Um, they were my pick. I, I I won my bracket pool because of UConn because they were one of the three teams that had that fingerprint of a national champion. Top ten offensive efficiency, top thirty five defensive efficiency. There were only three teams: UConn. Uh, Purdue and Houston were the other ones. Um, So I'm looking at these three teams, and I'm saying which of these three teams could land in that same boat. I'd probably hedge on Creighton, but, you know, all three of them, like I said, there's so much on top of each other. It's going to make for great basketball when they play each other a bunch of times this year. Yeah, and looking at Marquette, or you're looking at two of the teams between Marquette and UConn, Maxon's Prosper, losing him. I, I know you mentioned the rebounding, which is definitely one of the reasons why I wasn't as high on Marquette as maybe the market was and still currently is. But Maxon's Prosper's length and isolation defense is a big loss for them, for a team that relies on ball pressure and getting out in transition and doesn't necessarily have that elite ISO defender anymore in the half court. And then on the flip side of that, Maxon's Prosper was also elite as a cutter and off ball mm-hmm. in Shaka's motion offense, but for UConn too, I actually 
I mean, getting Cam Spencer, using him to replace Jordan Hawkins, surprisingly kind of negates the loss of Hawkins just because of how good Spencer is off ball. But then the other losses, I mean, the final four MOP in Adama Sanogo goes without saying. And then Andre Jackson, what he meant as a playmaker, especially for them in March, they don't win a national championship without that secondary playmaker and how good Jackson was out in transition with his decision-making. That was a big reason why UConn flipped the switch going back to when they struggled in the second half or the maybe the first half of Big East play in January and early February. And then when they finally turned it around was because of their usage with Jackson in transition and in the half court. So by default, I already bet on Creighton and then it may be obvious to some, but Creighton, I'm with you. I, I already bet them at 40 to one going back to September. I actually found a rogue number on the Jays at that price. And I would still bet them they're as high as 35 to one in the market. And you could price shop the best national championship odds for college basketball over at the lines.com. You bring back Hawkbrenner, you bring back Trey Alexander, who was really good in pick and roll situations as a primary ball handler when Nemhard was out two years ago and even last year. So you mentioned Ashworth, even though you lose Nemhard, you replace him with an elite shooter in Ashworth for one of the best offensive minds in college basketball in Greg McDermott. And actually looking back at that Iowa game, I don't know if you had a chance to watch a lot of that game, Eric, but Farabello was the guy that was getting the minutes down the stretch. Ashworth was inconsistent with his shots. So that's why the TCU transfer from a couple of years ago was seeing the majority of the minutes at the point guard spot. And he was super efficient. So the fact that, cause depth was kind of an issue for Creighton last year. And people were using that as a reason why they weren't as high in the Jays going into this year. But if you have, a 1A, 1B point guard situation between Ashworth or quote-unquote point guard situation between Ashworth and Farabello, depth really isn't an issue, especially because Farabello gives you a little bit more size than Ashworth too. Yeah, I think that's going to work, definitely work to their advantage, especially when you count those guys in the back along with a guy like Trey Alexander who can just light it up. Obviously, there's no weakness there. I think the, the bigger problem, again, similar a little bit to, to Marquette, is going to be that power forward position of who's going to really fill that role going forward. Um, uh, the bigger can, I, I never really questioned Creighton's offense. I think Creighton's offense is very potent. My question is at the very end of the day is going to be, like I said, top 10, top 35, top 10 offense, top 35 defense to be a national champion. Is Creighton going to make that cut defensively? That's always probably been their Achilles heel a little bit. Um, it may still be the case again, but you know, obviously a great start for them. Um, it, that was a fun game. You talked about that game. Um, Iowa always seems to find a way to bring it offensively, and you know Creighton's going to bring it offensively. So that was a game that I kept kind of jumping towards, and 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 I ended up betting Iowa on that one to cover, and I believe they did. They 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 kind of snuck in there and, and held on to uh, the the spread was something like twelve, if I remember, or something like that. But um, no, I think they're again just one of my teams, one of my most complete teams, if you ask me. Uh, the question mark there is going to be defense, but I, like I said, I love the the addition of Ashworth might actually be a better fit for this offense than the Nemhard actually was. Absolutely. And the four man conundrum this year for Creighton, it's not solved by any means, but I thought Mason Miller has held his own more so mm-hmm. than I would have expected in the early goings. And then Isaac Trout too. 
can really space the floor, as we saw against Iowa going three of four. If you're concerned about Creighton's defensive efficiency, I wouldn't. I mean, the Iowa game, yes, Iowa covered, but Creighton's defense is designed to force long twos, which is the ideal scenario of any defense when you're looking at adjusted defensive efficiency or shot quality even. And Ben Cricky was automatic from mid-range twos, man. I couldn't believe, like, first half, I don't, maybe he missed one or two jump shots in the mid-range, but followed that up with missing some shots in the second half. But I'm not concerned about Creighton's defense, and they've been over the last couple of years a top 20 defensive team on your site and a bunch mm-hmm. of other college basketball analytics sites. So you don't lose your two best defenders. You bring those guys back. What Cockbrenner meant to that team, especially when he was out last year with Mono, Creighton's defensive efficiency, you want to talk about a dip. That's when it dipped. And then all of a sudden they were a top 10 team amongst a bunch of different college basketball power ratings when he came back for the rest of the season. So you bring him back. Obviously, we've harped on what Trey Alexander means to this team. And I was looking at Evan Miyakawa's site earlier today, looking at box BPR. Trey Alexander ranks number two overall in box BPR, best statistical output over the first three games or so. And his offensive BPR and defensive BPR, actually, this the best defensive BPR amongst any player listed of those 25 or 30 players, I guess, on Evan Miyakawa's site. And also Baylor Shireman is up there on that list too. Shireman, not the best defensive player, but covers a lot of ground defensively and is a pretty good rebounder at that small forward position. So we're both pretty high in Creighton, clearly. And like you alluded to, they need to figure out the power forward spot. But I do think it's going to be there, even if you're splitting minutes between Miller and Trout. And just because of the shooting that Trout gives you, I mean, he was a top 50, top 60 recruit going back to his days in one season at Virginia. So anything else with Creighton before we uh, continue the conversation on Eric? No, no, I was just going to say for Creighton, you know, obviously, like I said, don't put too much stock in what you're seeing in, in November. Like you talked about, yes, they've been very capable in the past, a top 25 defense the last three years so far this year, 60th in defensive efficiency. But again, you, you typically see some sort of regression back to the norm. I expect we'll see more and more of that from Creighton as the year goes along. And sticking in the Big East here, looking at one matchup as we'll kind of try to funnel in some matchups here throughout this edition of Outside Shots. Villanova, another Big East team that was hyped up throughout the offseason, a six-point favorite against Maryland, up to six. It opened right around five and a half as this game tips off on Friday night, one of the Gavit game matchups. And Maryland and Villanova have both struggled, but Maryland shooting 22.6% from three over their first three games and struggling against UAB and Davidson in that mini holiday tournament last week, similar to Michigan state, you would expect the three point shooting to regress, but how much does it regress in a (laughs) similar bounce back spot for Villanova? Because you look at, I mentioned this with Michigan state unguarded catch and shoot points per shot, Maryland, Below average and then some 0.86 points per shot on unguarded jump shots in the 24th percentile of that particular category. The talent is there, but 
I was also looking back at last season and Maryland's points per possession with and without Hakeem Hart on the floor. Maryland was one of the teams that I bet on as a long shot in the national title futures market. And I definitely look foolish right now, but I also should have considered the heart loss, even though he's buried deep on Villanova's bench right now, maybe a little bit more than I did because his ability to space this Maryland team out, maybe not so much with his three-point efficiency, but he was a really good connective wing for this Maryland offense. And they're definitely missing that passing wing, at least in terms of their flow offensively, because trying to intertwine two freshmen into Sean Harris-Smith and Jamie Kaiser, speaking of heralded freshmen, hasn't gone according to plan so far. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what you see is what you what you get with Maryland. It's it's very similar to last year. Um, you know, I mean, the pieces are there. You can't deny that with Jameer Young, Julian Reese, Dante Scott. Um, but, you know, coming out of the gates the way they do, they lose to Davidson, who I, I have ranked 146th, UAB, who I have ranked 97th. They didn't even play well that great against Mount St. Mary's in their opener. Um, but it's the, like I said, it's the same old story. This is a team last year that really was inconsistent. They struggled away from home, and it's it's kind of happening again this year. I mean, they're going to probably get on their home court. And it's going to be a completely different animal, similar to what we saw last year. Um, and I think this is probably a reason why you're seeing a little bit of a larger spread in this game than what I have. Right now, I currently have Villanova favored by about four. I think you're probably going to see a little bit bigger, something like six. Um, but that's probably indicative of the what we've seen from Maryland the last year, year and a half, where you take them out of their home element and they are just a completely different team. And Villanova, for that matter, struggling too. Yeah. And you look at their loss at the Palestra on Monday night, losing outright to Penn as I think they closed around 11, 12 and a half point road favorites or whatever you want to call that road environment. And now they come back home it's going to be Mikel Bridges' jersey retirement night. So you know that it's a little bit of a situational edge on top of the fact that Maryland struggles on the road going back to last year, struggled to cover against the number two. I think four and seven on the road in Big Ten play. Not that I'm looking at that from a trend standpoint, but I am curious to see if Maryland does adjust at all because that's something that Willard cited. He didn't like the fact that Maryland played in a tournament that early in the season. And I agree with him to an extent, but also I was expecting Julian Reese to continue on that trajectory that we saw at the tail end or in the midst of Big Ten play last year. He was a top 10 player, according to some sites, in Big Ten play and in conference play last year. He really upped his game, especially defensively in some of those matchups against Purdue going up against Zach Eady. Jameer Young also took a big leap looking at his shooting efficiency in big time play. So that's why I look at the loss of Akeem Hart and I know he isn't getting really any minutes for Villanova, but then you plug in guys that have no division one experience, even though they are highly touted freshmen in Deshaun Harris Smith and Jamie Kaiser, the shooting efficiency isn't there. You're relying on a guy in Noah bachelor who was barely playing off the bench last year. So for those maybe looking at regression as a reason to bet Maryland. This is where I kind of stay away from these spots early on in the season because it's a really good bounce back spot at home for Villanova. But 
if Willard throws any sort of zone at this Villanova offense that struggled when Penn went to that look in the second half, you also don't know who is really playing the point guard role for the Wildcats because as much hype as Mark Armstrong got in the offseason, had zero assists, no turnovers, but zero assists against Penn. And their on-ball identity at the point guard spot was really an issue for them down the stretch of that Penn game. So even if Maryland gets any sort of regression from three, maybe they cover the number, maybe they don't. But this is one of those games where I stay away and uh, try to get a gauge of if Maryland bounces back, great. But I'm not really seeing any reason why, unless you're just looking at this purely from a situational angle to bat either of these teams. Yeah, Villanova is an oddball team, and I think I have them at 37th right now. And the reason, and I think they, they were closer, they were somewhere around, right around 40th in my preseason baselines. And that was a weird team because they had, you bring back a lot of guys, and that comes into the, the, the preseason baselines. You're looking at prestige, you're looking at returning players, and you do return a solid foundation for Villanova. But you got to keep in mind a, a big portion of that foundation, a huge portion of that foundation is Justin Moore. And Justin Moore wasn't there for a big chunk of last year. So you kind of look at last year's data and you're kind of like, well, this is who they were last year. And they're bringing a lot of guys back. So that would imply you're kind of going to be a similar animal. Well, it's not quite like that because now you're getting a far more healthy Justin Moore. So I would argue that that 37th rating of Villanova is probably not doing them due justice. I would think they're probably a little bit better than that. Um, it's, it, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, the more we talk about this, the more I really want to hit Villanova on this one. I really feel, feel really good about Villanova covering this game. But at the same time, like I said, you're, you, it's a matter of time that Maryland is going to get their act together. They do have the pieces there. It's, it's, it's with the exception of maybe North Carolina last year, who had a lot of pieces and for whatever reason, really couldn't put it together very often. You, most of these teams will find a way. Um, but that being said, I keep coming back to the whole weakness of Maryland. Maryland just for whatever reason, just can't put it together on the road. This is a road game. Um, a lot of things to like here with Villanova. I still think Villanova can probably cover that game. Okay. So you're maybe looking at Villanova mm -hmm. chemistry. I'll be curious to see how that continues along here in non-conference. Once we get into conference play with this Villanova team, because obviously the upside is there when you, Bring back Justin Moore, Eric Dixon as well. Mark Armstrong supposed to take that leap, even though he hasn't yet through three games, small sample size. But you bring in the Richmond transfer, Tyler Burton, TJ Bamba from Wazoo, really good defensive player. And I mentioned Hakeem Hart, Lance Ware, who has barely seen the court too, along with Hart kind of buried on that Villanova bench. So chemistry is going to be an issue in the early goings. And that's kind of why it's, Tough to gauge some of these transfer-filled rosters as we try to get a look at, okay, where is the buy-low opportunity? Is this spread deflated for Villanova at home? But at the same time, even though it is a bounce-back spot, as you mentioned, can you trust a guy like Kyle Neptune that showed you last year or didn't show you anything that gives you any sort of optimism the way he handles rotations and we're already seeing that this year especially with the point guard play and them being able to handle a zone down the stretch I know it's early but I do have my concerns for a Villanova team that added some intriguing pieces along with Maryland I have my concerns with the Terps if Deshaun Harris Smith and Jamie Kaiser aren't able to get up to speed because Maryland needs three-point shooting badly but that's why it's tough to gauge 
transfer-filled teams early on in the season, and Villanova is no exception. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I just think, like I, I said, they're not quite at that level of the guys with UConn and Marquette and Creighton. Um, I think they have the potential to be there. It's hard to say, though, at this point. I think the jury's still a little bit out on Villanova. Like I said, they bring back a lot of guys from, like I said, they're not the, they're more bench guys than anything else, with the exception of Dixon and, and more. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to freshmen when they come in. A lot of these guys who may be proven commodities in other teams, you're bringing this senior from this this team over here and another guy, a junior from this team who have never really played together. Very similar to freshmen. It's just going to take some time for them to get to know each other and play at their peak maximum potential. And if you are interested, maybe in a, even this early, a buy low opportunity on Villanova in the national title futures market, they're priced around 50 to one, I think is their high point over at Caesar Sportsbook. Looking at, as we're running a little bit short on time here, Eric, looking and shifting over to the Maui Invitational, which is one of the best holiday tournaments by far. And that that one tips off on Monday and we get an alluring matchup and then some between Purdue, which is power rated, depending on where you're looking, number one against Gonzaga, even though they lost Venters, one of their heralded transfers and other transfer laden team. That is one of the best early season matchups. So obviously a spread isn't out for this game quite yet, but any initial thoughts on Purdue and maybe a little bit of a quick handicap on Purdue Gonzaga? Well, I have Purdue right now by three. I think uh, obviously the the game plan is to take Zach Eady out of his game. I mean, you have adequate guys out there, more than adequate guys in Brayton, uh, Brayton Smith and Fletcher Lawyer, but I'm just watching Edie time and time again, I'm like, every single time I'm like, I, I have my wife and kids there and they probably look at it and go, that's almost like not fair. I mean, the guy <laughs> is just an absolute monster on the in, inside, but it's going to be very interesting against a team like Gonzaga, who's going to have Graham Ike, who is now healthy in the middle. You're going to you're gonna have Anto, Anton Watson in there creating problems. And now you're going to have to rely a little bit more on the perimeter game for Purdue, which if it's not on, as you saw last year with, with Fairleigh Dickinson, all of a sudden Purdue struggles. Um, Gonzaga, you know, Nolan Hickman had a better year last year. Ryan Nemhart joins the, um, joins the dance. Braden Huff comes out of nowhere and averages what 21 points a game in the, in the first two games. And then I think Ben Gregg is better than advertised. So a lot of people are probably naturally going to be down on, uh, on Gonzaga and let's call it because of the Drew Timmy effect that he was the, the main guy for them for so long, but you know, don't sleep on Gonzaga. Gonzaga is still a very, very powerful basketball program. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't know if I necessarily have a lean just because we don't have a spread out for this game. I would assume there's going to be some steam on Purdue just because of the way the market gauges the Boilermakers. Like I mentioned, one of the national championship contenders on the odds board and in general in college basketball. I'm not as high on Purdue as maybe the market is. You look back at that Xavier game on Monday night and listen, I get the hype around Fletcher Lawyer and Braden Smith taking that next step like you expect from another team of the Big Ten that I mentioned, Jameer Young and Julian Reese. You expect guys to naturally take that next step in college basketball, at least if you're high on a team. But Braden Smith and Lance Jones, who they got from Southern Illinois, and two of their primary ball handlers combining for six turnovers against an athletic Xavier front court. You mentioned Namhard and Hickman. Those guys are just as athletic, if not more, 
showcasing more athleticism than what we see with Xavier this season, at least from a guard perspective. So I'm really curious to see how Purdue handles any sort of ball pressure. I know that's not what Gonzaga is necessarily known for, but that's how you get under Purdue's skin and start to get their offense out of sync. Not only forcing doubles down low and making them take outside shots like you alluded to with the Fairleigh Dickinson first round game. And that was a team, speaking of a pressure havoc team, Fairleigh Dickinson pressed the most among any team in college basketball last year. Mark Few isn't known for that per se, but I am curious to see how he designs his defensive coverage against this Purdue backcourt because as high as some are on Braden Smith, Turnovers are still an issue for him, as we saw in the exhibition game against Arkansas and against Xavier on Monday night. And even with an athletic guard in Lance Jones that could space the floor, I'm not as high on Purdue's backcourt as some college basketball betters and just college basketball viewers are, even though you have the odds-on favorite to win National Player of the Year and win back-to-back in Zach Eady. You mentioned a guy in EK going back to when he was healthy two years ago, but not going up against the competition like a seven foot four Zach Eady, but still held his own in terms of points per possession allowed when he was guarding the post a couple years ago. So I am curious to see how he does one-on-one against Zach Eady, kind of similar to how Julian Reese defended Eady in Big Ten play last year. Not the biggest defender, right around 6'9", 6'10", but physical and was able to force Edie out of the deep post. So we'll mm-hmm. see if Ike is able to have a similar effect against one of the best bigs in college basketball over to another game of the Maui Invitational UCLA and Marquette. This is one of those games where it's going to be all about pace, right? Because Marquette wants to play up and down as we saw against Illinois UCLA, especially with all the transfers and international players they brought in and everything they lost wants to play at a much slower tempo. So what do you make of this game on the surface? Yeah, this one's going to be uh, right now. I have Marquette by two in this one. And again, that might be, uh, that might be overblowing UCLA a little bit. I think they're kind of highly rated from an analytical standpoint, based on recent prestige. When you think about it, when you lose Jaime Hawkes, Tiger Campbell, uh, you know, Jalen Clark, Amari Bailey, David Singleton, that was a, a pretty loaded team a year ago. Um, but, you know, they also kind of reeled in a lot of four stars. So that was one of the things that really kind of kept them near the top of my rankings because those guys were supposed to be immediate contributors. Um, I think it was smart of, of Mick Cronin to kind of ease his guys in. And this is going to be the fir- easily the first real test, test for UCLA. Two of the three teams that they've played already are in the bottom 10, at least per my rankings, in Division One. So they really have not faced anybody. They've been successful, obviously, but it's not hard to be successful when you're playing teams who are ranked 360th in the country. Um, but it's hard to say. It's UCLA has it was supposed to be a work in progress. They might still be a work in progress, but obviously, you know, the big step up in competition here. Um, the the analytics say Marquette by two. I'd hedge a little bit more than that, but you know, we'll see. Uh, if these guys can get Cronin's system right away, this team has a very, very high ceiling. UCLA can still be a top 15 team in this country. And looking at the Bruins in their backcourt, you mentioned all the pieces they lost. Dylan Andrews didn't see either very minimal minutes or didn't see the court at all in that LIU game on Wednesday night. So yeah, he didn't play a single minute for them. So I'm 
there's been nothing reported as to why that was. I, I don't know if there was a personal issue or what. I think he was announced as a starter and then didn't play, or maybe he was seen on the bench, whatever the situation was. I'll be interested to see if he makes the trip to Maui. That's something to watch for, for sure. And if this spread balloons, UCLA not having a key contributor in their backcourt could be a big reason why. So I wouldn't overreact and I would make sure to uh, see if Andrews is playing before maybe jumping on UCLA if this spread spikes. But a dead bonus to your point, even though it's been lower tier competition for UCLA so far, that's a guy that has taken a step up so far and he's an NBA prospect. So something to watch for against a Marquette team that struggles to rebound. Like you mentioned when we were touching on the Big East as a whole, at least in terms of those top three teams. So if UCLA can control the glass in this game, that's going to be the key to controlling the pace, generating second chance shots. And if Bona can have his way with Iguodaro, maybe UCLA wins this game outright. Again, we don't have an initial spread here on Thursday night, but one of the more intriguing games early on in the week, especially if UCLA's international prospects can give them more floor spacing than we've seen so far. Maybe they see some three-point shooting regression in their own right, right around 25% through three games or so. And then Andrew's status, like I mentioned, is going to be one to watch. But I may be more buy low here on UCLA because the market, I know you said you had this line closer to two. I can honestly see it opening closer to five Mm -hmm. with Marquette here, maybe four, three to four. So I think your ratings honestly may be closer to what the line should be, or maybe indicating that there is value on UCLA in this game. Well, I mean, and then you have uh, Stefanovic is a, is a nice addition for UCLA as well. And then I think one of the bigger concerns coming into the season was going to be a Dembonis shoulder and uh, comes out in his first few games and averages 18 and nine. So yeah, it's, 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 it all came down. And I know that, that Cronin likes to bring in that international flavor into his team. Um, just a bunch of guys from a random Eastern European countries. It seems like there's a whole slew of them again, very similar to freshmen. Um, it depends on how much experience they have and how much maturity they have. If they have the maturity level, they might be able to come in and play within that UCLA team environment right away. And like I said, if that's the case, you're looking at a top 25 team right out of the gates. No doubt about it. And that pace is going to be something to monitor average possession length so far. UCLA ranks just outside of the bottom 100 across division one. And then we know Shaka teams play up tempo. They thrive off of that havoc ball pressure and get out in transition. So pace will be a instrumental factor in this game for sure. On to the Fort Myers tip off featuring your favorite team, Eric, wrapping it up here <laughs> with a snail like methodical, disgusting tempo. <laughs> if you want to watch Very minimal scoring. I would not suggest turning on Virginia and Wisconsin on Monday night. But I digress. What do you make of this game? What do you project the spread to be, A? And do you think there could be any value in the under? I know that's the obvious look for betters maybe seeing this thing on the odd screen for the first time Monday afternoon, Monday morning, maybe even Sunday night. But you look at the last time these two teams played, 98 combined points in 2018. I'm not one to look at historical trends at anything like that, but Virginia's offense is going to be very three-point centric this year. You have a guy that slots in perfectly after losing Kia Clark, Reese Beekman playing more of that off-ball secondary ball handler holding that position last year. Now he's Virginia's primary ball handler and one of the best defensive players 
isolation-wise and off-ball in college basketball. And then Wisconsin's offense lays a dud on the road at Providence. I think it was on Tuesday afternoon before the Champions Classic. That's one of those where you have to pay attention to situational spots. I know I kind of joked with you. I was ready to give you shit about Wisconsin (laughs) before this podcast started. I think the AJ store edition is massive for this offense. He gives them more upside than they've had because of what he brings to them as an individual isolation score. But I wouldn't take too much into what we saw over the first two games in terms of pace, because I do think this Wisconsin team under Greg Gard is still going to try to play at that slower tempo, which is why I kind of mentioned the under to you in this game from the get-go. Well, I should say they should have a warning on this game. Do not operate heavy machinery after watching this contest. That's the, that's the first <laughs> thing that should be out there. Um, I currently have this one, Virginia, 64-63. The over-under is about 127.5. It's a little bit of a new-look Virginia, if you, if you ask me. I mean, I think... This is kind of a, maybe I'm being a little hard on the guy, but Kihei Clark's been a little bit of an albatross to Virginia as far as I'm concerned. It's a little bit like Badger fans who know Wisconsin. It felt like a little bit like Demetri Trice when he was here for Wisconsin. Um, And I mean that in a way in that these guys are very competent basketball players, but there were just certain times in clutch situations when you knew the ball, you had the ball in their hands and you just get that old sinking feeling. And you're like, oh no, something bad is just going to happen here. I kind of feel like that was a little bit of the case with Kihei Clark. I think they needed a little bit of a reset. Clark is gone. Armand Franklin's gone. Jalen Gardner's gone. Uh, Caden Shedrick transfers. I think this is an opportunity for for Tony Bennett to get back to basics, to get back to being a great defense. And where they've noticeably slipped over the last three or four seasons, I think it's a great opportunity to reset for, for Virginia. For Wisconsin, it is, I don't quite know what's going on with there. I, I agree with you on store. I think the the trade-off was we lost Jordan Davis and in comes AJ Store. I think that's an obvious upgrade because Jordan Davis was not Johnny Davis. I can guarantee you that. Uh, but the, <laughs> the big question mark right now with Wisconsin is what's going on with Connor Ocesian. Plays 22 minutes in his first three games and then the press asked Greg Gard, why are you not playing uh, Connor Ocesian? And he says something along the lines of, well, you have to ask Connor that. And I don't quite understand where he's going with that. But Asijan was supposed to be that rising sophomore. And I hate saying rising because typically when you say rising, it's a guy who has a freshman average like 3.9 points per game. And then he scores nine points per game in sophomore year. Asijan was already doing better than that last year. So this was supposed to be the year where he he became the offensive alpha. But 22 minutes over the first three games, I don't exactly know what's going on there. Um, It has not been a pretty start. I thought they played you know, fairly well against Tennessee. They just could not get that, you know, that lead down under six or something like that. But yeah, Providence, they just came out flat in that one. They were down early and it just got worse from there. Um, Hopefully a bounce back game for my Badgers. But like I said, this is the game that we all kind of joke about whenever Wisconsin and Virginia, people just go, oh God, this is going to be a slowdown game. Um, Can they possibly hit the under? I think it's very possible, but usually I stay away from, over-unders in games like these. Yeah, on a neutral court, too, the total is going to get bet down immediately. As soon as that market opens, you're going to see it start to surge towards the under, no question about it, maybe even under 127. I could see this closing closer to 120, and I don't think that's an overstatement by any means. Yeah, there's been some weird things going on with Greg Gard over the last few years. What, he kind of lost the team either two or three seasons ago, there were reports of that at the end of the year. And then they kind of backed off of it. I I think there were some comments 
that guard reportedly made to his team in the locker room that caused some players to want to transfer. But the shooting is theoretically there against a pack line defense that Tony Bennett runs. We still have Klesmit. We have no idea. And that was a great point that you brought up. What's going on with the siege in? And I wouldn't call him a rising sophomore either because he averaged, what, 11 points a game mm-hmm. last year. Right. So right. the whole situation going on or in that locker room, I don't know if he's hurt or what, but then for guard to say you should just ask Connor is just odd. Like he's kind of throwing him under the bus. Hepburn has not shot it well from deep. So you look at Wisconsin's three-point efficiency so far, ranking 227 across college basketball, and their point distribution too. It's bottom 65 in the country in terms of three-point scoring, and their efficiency overall is 30.4% from deep. So Storr is going to have to shoot it well. Hepburn is also going to have to shoot it well. And then you kind of mentioned this new-age Virginia look, or at least a new era of Virginia basketball. Ryan Dunn at the four, I was digging into some numbers before we did this podcast. He is the best defensive reigning among any individual player with at least 75 minutes so far this season. So he gives you upside because he is that floor spacing four man that Jalen Gardner wasn't. He was more of the mid-range shooter in Tony Bennett's offense. So the offensive ceiling for Virginia expands with Dunn, and then he's also a really good defender, and that plays a role into this game because he's likely going to be matched up against Tyler Wall. Yeah, and on top of that, you bring in Jake Groves from Oklahoma. He's a guy that comes out there and averages 11-3 and three in his first few games for Virginia. So, yeah, very different-looking team than you're used to seeing. I think that I think Virginia fans, it's a breath of fresh air. I think they've gotten way too used to being that team that gets in the tournament as like a four or a five seed and then lays an egg in the tournament. I think this is kind of, a little, like I said, the re- hitting the refresh button for Tony Bennett here. Man, it's been a really fun podcast. We broke down <laughs> four games. <laughs> We broke down the top of the national title odds board. We went over the 40-minute time constraint that I tried to keep us to. <laughs> I, I have t- a tendency of going long, being a little long-winded on occasion. So there is that. <laughs> you know, I can too. So yeah. really thorough breakdown of the national title futures market and given betters that gauge things on a day-to-day basis and that single game college basketball looking ahead to the Maui Invitational and even a Friday game if you're checking this out Friday morning Friday afternoon a lot to dive into in the college basketball betting markets and Eric will be joining me throughout the season you can follow him on Twitter at Haslametrics or X what do you like to call it Eric I got, I, I, I'm finally getting with the times I'm trying to call it X if I it's so weird if I'm like talking to you in like a in a DM or something. I'm like, Hey, can you X me? Or I'm like, that just sounds weird. (laughs) So I'll, I'll still use Twitter in certain situations, but even I finally got with the times on my website and I had a little link at the top that had the Twitter and I'm like, I should probably change that. So I finally did. So I'm slowly coming around and it's slowly becoming X. It's just hard to use X as a verb. (laughs) Whatever social media platform you want to call it, Eric's analytically final trend will continue forever and always you can catch all of those box scores on x twitter again whatever you want to call it eric does a great job and a phenomenal site too if you're a better that wants to dig into college basketball handicapping i alluded to the second chance scoring conversion percentage when digging into kansas and hunter dickinson earlier on in the podcast a bunch more that eric mentioned bunch more metrics to dive into 
from the get-go of this podcast that if you're handicapped at college basketball, you definitely want to have at the forefront of your list of analytics to dive into. But Eric, any last words before we get out of here? I don't think so. I think I've probably spoken enough for one night. Um, I'm, I'm just glad you caught me after last week. Last week I had the flu and then I had the cold. So I was in no shape to be doing this last week. So you caught me at the right time. I've had COVID for about two months, so I totally understand oh. any sort of sickness you're going through. It's been a heck of a fall, early winter for us in the Midwest, of course. But Absolutely. I digress about my cold complaints. Uh, hopefully we don't get cold shooting from Michigan State and Maryland next couple weeks of the college basketball season like we've seen over the first week plus in college basketball so far. But he is Eric Haslam. You can follow him on Twitter at Haslametrics. You can follow me on X Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Follow the lines on Twitter at the Lions US. If you're betting any college basketball, use promo code the lines to get up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet loses. You could also subscribe to the lines on YouTube to get all of our NFL betting content. I did our NFL Week 11 betting breakdown with Monawara earlier today. And you could subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you found your favorite podcast. So for Eric and for myself, Eli Herskovich, thanks for watching and listening to the first edition of Outside Shots this season. So long, everybody. 